Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Francis Barrow, CRO and co-founder of Mad Kudu. In this episode, we talked about how Francis started out studying mechanical engineering and ended up founding a company now serving as the CFO, what Mad Kudu is and how they help their customers, and why starting off the company by helping companies predict churn didn't work. We also discussed how a typical customer uses Mad Kudu and what success looks like for them, how Mad Kudu predicts retention at different time horizons, and the three stages of a customer's life cycle every CS team should know about. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. These, these not just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Francis. Welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure for the listeners. Francis is the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Mad Kudu, a predictive engine that analyzes user behavior to help predict conversion rates, upsell opportunities, and customer retention. Prior to Madkudu, Francis was the Director of Implementation and Sales Engineering at Agile One. And so my first question for you, Francis, is how did you start out studying mechanical engineering and end up founding a company now serving as the Chief Revenue Officer? I think it's overall the the background that I had was doing a lot of different things. I started in uh, theoretical mathematics, then went into applied mathematics, and then some mechanical engineering at Stanford at the D School, which I think was where... I really got introduced to the concept of entrepreneurship and especially that, you know, how that concept is embraced in the Valley. And that led me to really want to join um, a startup um, down here. And that's how I, I joined Agile One. And through my experience there, I learned a lot going from being a seed company all the way to Series C uh, was like rounds led by some of the most prominent VC firms out there, the Sequoia, Mayfield, and Tenayas of the world. And then at some point, I, I realized as the company was starting to hit the kind of 150 employee mark that I wanted to go back to building something from scratch. And that's how Mad Kudu started. Very cool. That's actually, I'm at a very similar point now at Hotshow where I currently am. It's getting to that point where it's 100 plus uh, now and that you're getting that itch to get started again. But uh, the one thing I wanted to ask, uh, and maybe it might just be termed that you were there, but uh, I noticed at Stanford, you were there for a year. Does that mean you were a dropout or does a specific course that you took? Uh... I, I wish I could say I was a dropout, like every <laughs> cool founder in the Valley, but no. Yeah. So I, I studied in, in France and essentially 
my engineering school allowed me to do a year exchange. Okay, I thought maybe you just did the cookie cutter model. Is that go to Stanford, drop out, found this time. Cool. And so I, I probably didn't do the best job of explaining what you do. I, maybe you want to explain a little bit more detail. What is Madkudu? How do you help your customers? Yeah, no, I think you did a, a really good job. And I think the, <clears throat> the easiest way to explain it is really at the high level where, and it almost goes to the origin story of Madkudu, where one of the realizations we had at Agile One was that we were a predictive analytics company and we were doing very little analytics research on our users. And as a SaaS company, it's important to know how your customers are using your product, how that's evolving over time. And we realized that there wasn't really any good solution out there to do that in the B2B space. There were some in the B2B, in the B2C space. And so we embarked on the route of uh, trying to help companies leverage all the data they had about their users and customers to be able to make the right decisions. And so today, that's still the, the lifeblood and mission of Mad Kudu, which is really helping uh, marketers and revenue teams turn uh, their data into insights and leverage those insights to turn them into revenue. So it's really taking a pragmatic and operational perspective on applying data science to user data. Very cool. And then you you mentioned as well in, in the beginning, I think that starting out with Mad Kudu, you initially looked to try and help companies uh, with churn and analyze that, realizing at Agile One. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What was the idea behind it? Why did you uh, choose predicting churn as a starting point? Yeah, at the time, the company was growing and we're looking at valuation and we're seeing that even just looking at the fundamentals of the company and we're realizing that we had an average deal size, which was in the, like the 200K kind of range. Closing a deal is excellent. Losing a customer is absolutely terrible. And it's really bad when you lose a customer and you realize that potentially they haven't been using the platform in three months or haven't been using it the way you expected them to. So we realized that was a problem and we were trying to figure out if there were any tools that would do that, none, no tools out there would do it. And what we found doing some research, trying to find a tool for ourselves, was that there were some really excellent companies out there. If you think of like the Totango or, or Gainsights of the world that yep. really focus on that CS space. But from our interactions with some of their customers or pe- yeah, people that had worked with those companies, those companies are excellent at driving operations and processes, but they don't necessarily excel in the ability to leverage high volumes of data to you know, do pattern matching or identifying any kind of trends in the data. And so we set on a course to say like the, the best companies and the biggest companies in the world, they can afford to hire and pay data scientists to mine the user data to look for patterns that might indicate that there's loss of, loss of trust or that some customers might churn. But most of the companies out there just cannot afford to hire data scientists. So how can we build something that connects into all the analytics systems that exist out there at the time, like Kissmetrics, Mixpanel, Segment, Amplitude, pull all the user logs, and from there, look to identify any uh, usage patterns to be able to bring that up to uh, the CS team to help them identify that there might be an issue with, with one customer or another. Interestingly, I guess the data science part of that was very successful. Like we managed really well to identify when there were issues and we were able to, to bring that up to, to CS teams. I think the, one of the main challenges we found was that our customers were struggling with the operationalization of this model. It tells you, watch out, this customer is at risk of churning. We're seeing that they're 
usage patterns have been affected by these two downtimes or by these little things here and there. And as a consequence, their daily uh, usage has dropped by 30% or, or whatever. That's great information. It's helpful for the CSM or the support team, if it's a distributed team, to know that they should reach out. However, what often happens is that if they reach out and the customer is about to churn, there's something that's fundamentally broken in the usage of the product. Like they might have, there's something missing, could be a feature, could be trust in the product, could be reliability. And that is something that is very difficult for a support or a CS person to fix. And so what we found was that very often, though we were able to identify customers that were at risk, we weren't able to find the right playbook to help the CS team prevent that churn. And I think that was probably, my assumption is that's probably what the great folks at Gainsight and Totango have found over the years and why they focus more on building the playbook for the CS team to know how to almost prevent those uh, disruptions in patterns of usage and, and really how to have the CSM fight churn and, and ensure that the customer is getting recurring value from the product. And, and I think that's what I've, that was a learning on that side is that the core thing that is important, I think, in, in retention and, and churn is really processes. Like the data can inform your processes, but you need to have excellent operations yeah from an execution standpoint talking to the customer and getting them to see value so they also impact yeah i I think this is it speaks to another issue as well that pretty much anybody that really goes about trying to improve uh, churn and increase retention is typically i'd say 80 percent of the time i've spoken to people they start with churn first and they try to see how they can avoid churn and they like you say try and predict who's leaving but more often than not it's almost too late. If somebody's made a conscious decision to stop using your product or to actually go into the product to churn, it's very difficult to train and change that behavior now to win them back uh, and to keep them going. Obviously, there's a certain percentage you'll be able to save, but ultimately, I think as well, what you're alluding to is uh, it's always going to be more beneficial as well for the business and for the company really to focus on the what's driving retention and how do you get more people to never get to that point. So almost in a way like prevention is better than churn. How have you seen this evolve now in what you do at Mad Kudu and uh, like not only for uh, your customers, but as an organization, how do you treat the two internally? Yeah, I think so for us that started a big shift where we, for the same customers, we started applying the same level of analytics to conversion prediction. We're saying, okay, let's look at usage patterns in free trials or in freemium models. And let's try to understand who is showing the right kind of patterns that indicate they're likely to buy. And from that, let's actually trigger the standard sales outreach. So sales is, on the bright side, is something where the, the process and the execution of reaching out to someone to try and close them on your product is very well established at, at an earlier time uh, in companies. And so that ended up being extremely successful, also from an ROI perspective, because we were able to say, we know we yielded X many incremental conversions. And therefore, we could say that we are in part responsible for the full lifetime value of these incremental customers that you wouldn't have closed without Mad Kudu. Whereas on the churn prevention side, at best, we were going to save the subscription of a few customers for a couple months. And, and so there was like a big delta in terms of the uh, incremental ROI that we could get from the, the predictive analytics. And that's why we ended up focusing on really the conversion aspect. And I think that was my big learning is that looking at maybe like earlier stage, if we're looking at series A, series B companies, the go-to-market execution 
from a sales perspective is generally at a much more mature stage than the execution on the CS side. And so therefore, there's a bigger gap to be filled on predictions for the go-to-market team because they already have the executions to support more intelligence being brought to the organization than there mm-hmm. is on, on support. And so that's where now when customers are saying that they want to have churn models, we go directly into more of a consultative approach and try to help them put in place some good processes to, to leverage some of the data in very basic ways that can help them highlight customers that might be at risk, but we really stay away from the, the predictive element. Absolutely. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I think the other thing you mentioned as well, was interesting uh, concept as well is like, customers or companies that are larger they can afford to hire data scientists to build these models and you wanted to build something for those that couldn't afford i would even argue though that a lot of the times companies that can afford to hire data scientists it's not always the best idea because building up on the knowledge and domain expertise takes its time it takes a lot of experimentation do you see this specifically only for earlier stage companies or companies that uh, can't afford a data scientist or do you see value in something like this working in conjunction with the other data because i've seen as well many times i can uh, the data sophistication of an organization is probably the most important in terms of how they can take advantage a lot of the stuff you can in some ways do it out of the box with like kiss metrics and mixed panel and you could figure things out the way but having something like mad kuda i think that automates this function for you and shows you what you should be looking for instead of gives you everything and asks you to try to find what you're looking for i think for me, at least from the surface, that's what sounds like uh, the key. Like, How do you see it internally? I think, yeah, and not to pitch against Matt Kudu, but I think especially on the CS side, the, the way I, I like to look at this also is the difference in, in trading between high-frequency trading and maybe like longer-term uh, investments like hedge funds or whatever. When you're doing high-frequency trading, like each transaction is going to be at a much lower value. And so that's where... You want to be able to react really quickly to any new change in the data set. Whereas when you're doing more longer term investments, like you're, you're really looking at a broader set of, of data points and slow moving points and trying to make decisions based on like information that isn't necessarily digestible easily by a computer. And also because it's going to take a long time before you see the results. And I see that churn is very similar to me to that low frequency trading because Typically in B2B, you have annual contracts, so it's not you're able to apply a quick change and monitor how that's going to impact your retention or your churn. And so it's, yeah, the same logic applies there where you want to have people that really understand what's going on at a more macro level. There are things that you're not going to see in the data. If, I don't know, you're working with a company that, you know, unfortunately, because of COVID has had to lay off 70% of their team regardless of what the usage says, right? There's just like a bigger macro problem that is going to very likely lead to churn. And that's something that like a a CSM should have expertise in how to deal with this and how to figure out how to work with the customer through these difficult times. That's not something that the the data is going to show you. So I think while there, there is value in starting with like first principle, starting with like very basic, very basic approach of leveraging the data to, to do the right things. And then you can start going into leveraging things like Matt's food and say, okay, once I've done the kind of basic and obvious, I have the basics in place to make sure I check in with my customers often. I know if they're using the product and trying to understand which particular types of events are going to be more important than others. That's when 
Amad Kudu um, can help to identify that. But from what I've seen, your companies that need that are going to be at a much later stage. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned as well uh, a couple of times now about results from AdKudu and uh, working with customers as well. Sometimes you consult and advise them uh, in different areas. Maybe can you talk us through like how does the typical customer use AdKudu? What would success look like for them? Yeah, on our side, it is. It's interesting with AI. AI software has definitely like a big component of education, right? So we have CSMs that take care of our customers and they're designated for each customer. They take care of the customer from the, the onboarding onwards to understand what the business need is and therefore how the predictive analytics that are going to be configured for them will, be, will fit into their, into their operations. I think that's one of the, the biggest challenges is making sure that our CSMs are able to understand how having this better understanding of what uh, a good prospect looks like, what a good prospect does, how having that information can actually change operations in a way that's going to yield uh, the highest amount of results. And so the engagement with Kudu, there's really two components. There's the core platform that's going to perform all these predictions, that's going to provide insights. But then there's the second part of, as I said, that's like turning data into insights. That's what the core platform does. And at this stage of the company, this is where we then use the CSM, say, okay, how do we use these insights to actually transform it into revenue? Because yeah, insights don't pay the bills. And that's where the CSMs are going to be coaching the customers to make sure that they focus on what is going to give them the biggest bang for the buck and where they'll have the the highest impact. So we might find some insights that are really interesting, but affect a very tiny portion of the population. So making sure that we don't get customers to dive super deep into that, but rather to start putting something in place that's going to have a a higher impact and also teaching them that you always want to apply the principle of crawl, walk, run. I think especially in the world of data analytics, people have all read about regressions, neural networks, all this kind of stuff. And they're, they understand it just well enough to be dangerous for themselves, where they want to go deeper, they want to understand more about how it works, but that becomes detrimental to the actual utilization of the insights. And so that's why really focusing our our CS team on pushing people to execute rather than trying to achieve a perfect model is a big component of our engagements today. Yeah, not to fall into the analysis paralysis trap uh, and trying to seek. I think this is definitely something we've been trying at Hotshot to drum into sort of the team uh, is really about get something working, MVP mindset and uh, the models we develop or whatever we work on in terms of analysis, it really needs like what can we deliver today to provide value and then think about how can we improve, improve it tomorrow as well. Uh, right. it's, it's a trap you can easily fall into when you uh, hear all the buzz and uh, you read the books for sure. And I think that the problem is in, in these, no one wants to do nuanced anymore, right? Just look at political debates, whatever you want to pick. Nobody is interested in something that's nuanced. We want either very black, very white. It has to be like polarized. And, and I think one of the challenges with data analytics and predictive models is that it's, there's a lot of nuance. One of the most famous statisticians, Mr. Box had said, he wrote this like, in one of his papers, like a very famous quote, he said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And his point was that a statistical model aims at one thing is to create as accurate as possible of a representation of the world. But it is a representation. It's always going to be wrong to some extent. But really, 
why it is designed is to make use of it to drive some decisions. And so we should focus more on the usefulness of the model rather than the accuracy, because we're never going to achieve 100% accuracy. But that is something that is very hard to understand and to not just understand, but really to be at peace with. Because we all want to see the, the deep learning network that's going to understand from looking at YouTube videos what a cat is. The truth is that in most cases, it's actually going to fail a little bit. But then again, like what's important is can we recognize the contour of a face? Can we recognize the contour of a, a dangerous object that's falling to drive the right action? That usefulness is what we should focus on rather than our ability to build one model that's going to be able to operate better, better than a human brain and, and understand everything. Yeah. I think in these cases as well, there's another good quote uh, by Ronald Coase, I think it was, like, if you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. Um, there's always going to be different ways you can look at uh, data, always going to be different interpretations that can be made as well. So it's not only about not having all the right answers and sometimes being wrong, but also who's reading and looking at the data as well. So uh, I think definitely from that perspective, it's really important to ask yourself when um like analyzing and trying to make decisions off of data is what do we what happens if this is wrong and i think that reversible door concept uh, that jeff bezos talks about a lot is that uh, you don't need to be right all the time as long as like they're not irreversible decisions so having the data and having something actionable is always going to be way better than spending the time to do months and months of research and analysis trying to perfect uh, any model that you work on. Uh, I think that's why I probably leave it up to the guys at Mad Kudu to help out uh, with as well so you can get focused on other work that delivers value. Cool. So one thing I'm interested in asking as well is what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started? Apart from the fact that, yeah, operations are more important than data prediction, I would say it's probably the one of the, I guess, like secrets that, that we figured out was that it's easier to build models that predict retention and use them to predict churn than to try and predict churn as the outcome. Because when you're looking to predict retention, what the model is going to start identifying is what are the behaviors that correlate to getting value from the product and really what what matters as long as someone is getting value from the product there is a high chance they're going to be retained and really the the group of people that you should be worried about are people that are not getting that value from the product and so marking those as the people who are likely to churn is generally a better a better way to look at it than to try and and run churn predictions where you're going to look for huge disruptions and patterns of someone going from you know, I don't know, like having a, a whatever, a 30% drop in, in usage or, or something like that, where if they're still over the bar of, of you know, break even in terms of like cost to the value they're getting, then they're probably not at risk of churning. It might just be some macro event that's happening, uh, traffic yeah. on their website or whatever. So I think that was really a big one for us was to start looking at how do we predict ret retention at different um, time horizons? And how do we use that actually to predict churn and to start setting milestones that we want people to hit? And, and that's really when we start building that almost like decision tree of if people are on the right path, that's great, keep on pushing them. And as soon as they fall off of that kind of like happy path standard branches, then that's when we want to have someone intervene. Interesting. Can you dive into that a little bit more detail? So you mentioned like at different horizons and looking at retention and seeing where they're at like, 
how is this working? What are you looking for? What is the horizons and timelines that you're looking to see a certain behavior by? So from when you look at the data, there's generally a couple big inflection points in the in cohort retention, right? So again, it really depends on how how your go-to-market is positioned. And it also depends if you're on monthly payment, um, quarterly, annually, whatever, like the lens of your contracts. But um, typically you're going to see that uh, for a given cohort, if you look at that kind of cohort, like pure retention, removing upsells, uh, or just from a like net logo perspective, you'll see that there's like some inflection points where there's like big chunks that that end up churning. And so what you want to then do is to say, okay, we want to build retention predictions around those different timeframes and figure out what is important at that around that time to make sure people are retained. And we often see that, yeah, there's going to be different importances. Like if take a very simple example, so we have customers who will have like opt-outs often 90 days of a free trial or whatnot. And the onboarding there is going to be extremely critical, making sure you have, let's say if you're a CRM, making sure that you've connected your Gmail, you've loaded contacts, you're creating deals, you're closing deals, like making sure you've at least closed one deal in those first 90 days is going to be incredibly critical to make sure that you're retained. Because if you're not closing deals, then you're probably not seeing yet the value from a CRM that you're paying for. However, loading your you know initial contacts or connecting your calendar or your Gmail is not something that matters when we're looking at a year past your initial conversion and trying to predict if you're going to be retained. Then the question is really, are do you have, have you invited more people? Are those people logging in? What's your total number of users? And what percentage of your go-to-market team is actually logging into that CRM? Those kind of events become a lot more important. That means that you also need to design the phase between the first 90 days to the annual renewal to incorporate things that are going to increase that stickiness. Yeah. So it sounds as well like there's sort of two uh, distinct phases and the timeframes and horizons can change depending on your product and your customer base. But the activation phase, which is that first initial period where depending on your product, it might be 30, 90 days or, or whatever it is, where you see maybe potentially the biggest drop off in churn. And during that period, it's really looking what are the key actions that users are taking to get set up to get that value and actually getting that value. If they don't get that value, that's going to be like a key indicator that they're not going to be around. And then the second phase I think you're talking about is going more like the depth and looking at engagement and seeing, okay, what are they doing to increase their engagement in the product? If it's depending on the product, is it inviting new team members to their account, like you said? Is it potentially increasing that intensity or the frequency of usage, which will indicate and give you a better idea if, if they're getting more and extracting more value? Is that correct in saying like you typically would maybe look at two different phases, one being activation and the second then being engagement when it comes to these predictions? I might break it into three and think of the three different stages of the life cycle. And I recommend every CS team to have that kind of mapping, at least internally in their CRM or, or customer uh, tool to understand where people are. So I usually break it into there's an implementation phase, there's a ramp phase, and then there's the cruise phase. Implementation is when you're really getting things set up. So you're connecting all of your integrations, just getting the the tool up to a place where you can start using it. And until that implementation is done, zero value is going to be obtained by the customer, right? It's really just technical setup, getting everything up and running. And the length of that phase is important because that's pure cost, right? From a, from a customer perspective, 
there's like cost for the software, there's cost of not having the tool. And just so the longer that goes, the longer you are in that, you're just burning that like CS cache, if you will. And then there's the RAM phase where now you go into, okay, how do we drive adoption and start getting the initial value from the product and start growing that adoption within the team? And then cruising is once you're yeah, in cruising mode, everything is set up, people are using the product, there's going to be some more team members that get added as they get onboarded to the company. But overall, like the main use cases are identified. You know, there's ongoing value that's been hit. And that's, yeah, that's something that ideally you want to achieve three quarters before uh, renewal. Yeah. Very cool. So think about in those sort of three uh, phases and then really trying to look at from a retention perspective, what does everybody need to do to hit and achieve and get to those different phases in their journey? I see we're running up a little bit on time. So there's a question I ask every guest that joins the show. I'd love to hear your opinion as well on Francis is let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company and when you join this company, churn and retention is not doing great. The CEO comes to you and asks you to try to turn things around for them, but he's on a tight deadline to try and get results and needs to see something happen in the first 90 days. What would you want to be doing with your time uh, to try and make a dent? Yeah, it's a great question. I would probably try, so again, it would depend on, of course, how contracts are set up and how churn is happening. If if we're on annual contracts and no opt-outs, then um, making sure to talk to every single customer that is up for renewal in the next, I would say, three to six months. If then If it's like monthly contracts, probably talking to as many customers as possible to understand how they're getting value from the product if they are and starting to yeah to monitor to monitor that just to classify our customers in terms of are our customers getting value from the product yes no and then going through probably yeah just interviews to to try and figure out from them what's missing and then take it from there i think it's it it, it is difficult to there's i don't think there's a recipe that can be applied of oh if you do this it, it's going to work I think it's really a matter of reaching out to customers and understanding how they're getting value from the product or what's prohibiting them from getting that value. It's very interesting that you mentioned like really just speaking to customers first as opposed to opting and starting to take a look at analytics and data and analyzing. And I think it's something you alluded to earlier though as well as like when it comes to general retention, the work that you do today is only seen tomorrow. It's not something that's immediate and the the impact that you're going to have uh, potentially, like you say, from having these conversations face-to-face direct is immediate and it's felt as opposed to starting from that standpoint where you're really looking at the data, trying to understand, trying to fix things. If you're not having those conversations, you're missing all those signals. You're missing that the company returns 70% of the people, like you said, and they're going to return anyway. You're missing uh, all sorts of other things that might be in the way that you can really just uh, get a better grasp of understand that can inform and influence how you go about approaching it. And and again, it's you know a question of maturity, right? If you join yep. Spotify and they tell you, "Oh, damn, we're having bad retention numbers," then I would assume there's probably an issue somewhere in the platform, and that's where you can start looking at the data a little bit and potentially still talking to customers because they they might help you figure out a hypothesis quickly. But yeah. generally, the other issue with predictive is that if you're not tracking it, then there's no way you can use it to you can use that to predict anything, and very often. People are having trouble with with a product because there could be a, 
a missing feature. There's no way to track that there's a missing feature. So sure, you could open up boards for customers to request features and things like that. But at the end of the day, people don't necessarily know how to call what it is they need. It's a famous, again, like just to use quotes, but like Henry Ford saying that he, if he listened to people, he would have given them a faster horse. Like ultimately, they just wanted to go faster from point A to point B. And if you listen to customers, they're just going to present their needs or how they want their needs to be fulfilled within the scope of what they understand. And that's where that kind of customer discovery is critical to build empathy with the customer, understand what it is they're trying to achieve, where you fit in their success within their organization, and then look back at the product to see where you might you know, not be helping them uh, achieve that full potential. Absolutely. I think this is also one of those things we talk about in business intelligence at Hotjar is a lot of the times uh, like analysts can really get stuck and wrapped up in crunching numbers and analyzing data. But if you're not having conversations with customers as an analyst, you have a very big blind spot in terms of the ability to empathize and understand uh, what they're going through, what are the problems, and it'll make you a better analyst as a whole as well, being able to inform maybe some of the decisions or areas that you look into data because like you say, you're not going to get the full picture uh, from just looking at data and having those conversations, being able to empathize, being able to understand uh, your customers. Nothing can beat that. Yep. Cool. Like we're up on time now. Any sort of final thoughts that you want to uh, leave the listeners with? Anything they should be aware of or how they can keep up to date with what you're working on at Mad Kudu? Of course, I'd recommend them to subscribe to our blog at uh, madkudu.com just because I think we there's some fun analyses in there and we talk a lot about uh, data science and how to be pragmatic about it. And we do have a couple of recipes out there on how to build your first kind of churn model if you really want to build something yourself. So I definitely recommend checking that out and reaching out if they have any questions on, on how to get started, how to do it, or if they were, you know, would like to see any updates to that kind of information. Very cool. Uh, thanks very much for joining the show today. It's been a pleasure having you and uh, wish you best of luck now going forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, Subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.